Hello, welcome to the Be The Solution podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Johnson. I am a communication specialist here at the College of Social and Behavioral Science. On today's episode, we will be discussing something that has impacted millions of Americans, and that is the childcare crisis. To provide more understanding on this topic, we are joined by two guests. First, the outstanding economic faculty member, Dr. Katherine Rutschlin, who in her academic and professional research emphasizes the social, historical, and policy implications of economic problems. Her past research includes many things, including policy reports focused on the market for childcare services in Utah. Through her role as the Associate Director of the Economic Evaluation Unit, she produces economic research for state and federal agencies to inform evidence-based policy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. We are thrilled to also be joined by the graduate student, Yazga Gench. Yazga's research focuses on availability of childcare services in communities and families' access to childcare. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for both joining us. We're really excited to get both of your insights on this topic. As a mother, it has definitely impacted me personally, and I know that it impacts many others in our university community and beyond. To start us off, I wanted to share a statistic that was published by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics that calculated as many as 100,000 Americans have been forced to stay home from work each month because of childcare problems. This amounts to about $122 billion each year lost in earnings, productivity, and revenue. With that information, can you provide more context as to what the childcare landscape looks like locally and nationally? And what are these challenges families are facing when they look for affordable childcare? I can go first. Thank you so much for uh, providing this uh, space for us to uh, talk about this a substantial issue uh, because the market failure to childcare is a it's I think it's a very well established concept right now in the United States. So as a as a researcher, it's it's kind of important to have these spaces and then use the spaces to keep the discussion alive. I think the childcare landscape it's kind of it could be summarized very well with the statistics that you provide, so like the how many families and how many parents need to stay at home because of the lack of availability. And uh, I would like to mention a little bit the challenges for the actors of this uh, market, for like providers, for workers, and for families. So providers in the United States, many providers run with the government benefits in the U.S. So it's uh, they're they're kind of providers who try to make their ends at the end of the day. And then one of the biggest reason for this is it's it's because childcare is being a very costly industry. It's a very labor intensive. And the most significant item in their provider's cost is the labor cost. If they try to provide a high-quality childcare by considering the staff-child ratios, uh, by considering hiring someone with higher education degree, higher experiences, then it can affect the prices and uh, at the same time the quality. So, And these are also small businesses, which means that they are very vulnerable to the macroeconomic conditions that we saw in the COVID-19. So these are all affecting the providers' uh, challenges uh, in the market. At the same time, even it's a very labor-intensive industry, even the labor is one of the most important part of the services provided in the market, 
these workers are among the lowest paid occupations in the U.S. economy. So our latest um, report that we've done with Catherine shows that childcare workers' wages in Utah is around $15 per hour, which is significantly lower than uh, median wages for all occupation in the state, which is about $21. Uh, $21 per hour. So the majority of childcare workers in Utah earn less than the state median for uh, all occupations. So in addition to these low wages, their health insurance, retirement contributions, paid sick leave, these are not common um, uh, benefits for most of the workers in, in this uh, labor force. So the most common uh, form of workplace benefits are paid all day, paid personal days. Even these most common ones are available for only uh, half of childcare workers in Utah. So for the family sides of the story, it's uh, of course it's been again expensive. It's not affordable. Uh, it's childcare is considered affordable in the literature if it costs families no more than seven percent of their income. And for the Utah right now, this percentage is around 11.5%. So uh, basically median yearly price for uh, for infant care in Utah is around $11,000 per year. So uh, it seems like childcare cost, it's not affordable in Utah, but at the same time, it's not more expensive than uh, any other places in 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 United States. Basically, we can say that childcare is expensive everywhere, but in some places it's less expensive, some places more expensive. So Utah is not a it's not an outlier in terms of cost, but when you think about with the uh, large household size of Utah families, then childcare become extremely costly. For, for your talk family. So I'll, I'll stop there to uh, pass to Catherine. Thanks, Jaska and Elizabeth. I want to jump in on that statistic that you mentioned as well, uh, because I think it's important to note that, you know, when you cite more than 100,000 workers who lack access to childcare, the, the market isn't just under providing childcare at the level of the private household, the workers who are staying home, but it's actually under provided at the level of society. So you mentioned the lost productivity, output, and translating into income that's associated with those lost workdays. But I think the most important aspect to set the stage for talking about the childcare landscape are the huge social benefits that accompany care for children ages zero to five. There is an abundance of research that demonstrates that investments in early care and education have a huge social payoff that uh, have it make ensuring that families of all income levels in all geographical areas are prepared to start schooling K through 12 at a level of readiness that is built upon the development of social, emotional, and intellectual skills pays off at a rate of about 13 cents, or if you're looking at, or I'm sorry, 13% return on investment. Or if you're looking at it in a cost benefit sense, it's $6 for every $1 put in to zero to five education. And this is one of our, our best researched areas in terms of human capital benefits for society. We see at the social level, you know, not just higher labor force participation of parents, higher labor force participation of those children when they become adults. We see better health outcomes that create less drain on our public and private healthcare systems. We see less crime and 
less victimization associated with those higher investments. Um, we see uh, higher productivity, higher incomes, and higher tax revenues associated with those investments. So there's just a wealth of social benefits that are being left on the table by the underinvestment in childcare at the state level and the national level. Wow, that's really fascinating. Thank you for sharing your insight. You mentioned the stresses that the pandemic caused on childcare resources. In some ways, I've seen COVID-19 force employers to maybe offer more flexibility. But from a statistical standpoint, how have ongoing pandemic issues shaped the childcare landscape? And what does that mean for policy? Yeah, so COVID was such a maelstrom of disruption on all sides of this market that it's really hard to identify where to start with the, you know, the ripple effects throughout the industry. Um, imagine like back in the early days of the pandemic when people were disinfecting their groceries, being in charge of a classroom of 10 toddlers who have runny noses and put everything in your in their mouths, right? Um, as a provider, that was a huge cataclysmic change in the way business operations would proceed from there. Uh, as a family who was maybe an essential worker and had no choice but to take their child into childcare and rely on those group settings, it was associated with a higher perceived level of risk than had ever been assumed before. And for workers, their job responsibilities changed dramatically overnight. So on all sides of this market, there was a huge disruptive force. And as a result, we saw contraction on both the demand side, households pulling back from enrolling their children in childcare and preschool facilities, and on the supply side with providers shutting down or operating smaller sized classrooms on a skeleton, you know, a skeleton staff. Um, and in this period, just in the first year, as a result of those changes on both side of the, sides of the market, what we saw was a 10% drop in childcare worker and preschool teacher positions just, you know, between, uh, you know, 2019 and May of 2020 at the very beginning of that pandemic. And it took a really long time for uh, the industry to recover those positions, right? In Utah, it took, you know, uh, two years at the national level. We haven't seen a full recovery in employment in the childcare sector even yet, you know, even as late as the latest um, data. So, you know, what we saw was an, an incredible transition in how, how people thought about the market. And I think one of the most spectacular implications of this devastation is that childcare, uh, the issue of market failures in childcare was really forced to the front of minds, not just of households that rely on paid childcare, not just of, of employers, of you know working parents, but really of everyone. It really laid bare those social benefits of childcare, reinforcing you know the ability to manage and you know facilitate a market system that relies on working parents, um, and and that attention to childcare as vital infrastructure. And the American economy came into the policy lingo really for the first time during that era. Um, the other thing that happened that was really important associated with those changes is that the federal government pumped massive federal support 
through to stabilize the industry in order to facilitate a return to work, a return to productivity in the American economy. And that stabilization funding amounted to $52 billion through the CARES Act, the Coronavirus Response and Relief Supplemental Appropriations, and the American Rescue Plan Act. And what we saw associated with that massive increase in funding was a, a true large-scale effect on the industry that increased its ability to serve working households, to support you know, private producers who rely on those workers, to care for children who benefit from child care services, right? To and to you know stabilize the industry in a way that hadn't been tried before. I think some of the biggest lessons of COVID for the child care industry are first um, that uh, those broad scale social benefits are widely apparent when there's a massive disruption in this market, and second that federal funding works. Yeah, I I think that that was that was an amazing summary. And one thing that I would like to add in a local level, so in contrast to many other states, Utah kind of managed to increase its licensed childcare capacity dis- despite substantial pandemic disruptions, thanks to these uh, stabilization grants that Catherine mentioned. And this is very important for for Utah because Utah is the one of the most severe childcare deserts in the nation. So more than 75% of residents living in areas which has a very limited access to childcare. But during the pandemic, during this COVID-19, Utah kind of uh, increase the licensed childcare capacities in the states. So according to this uh, latest report from Voices for Utah Children, they mentioned that Utah's childcare capacity basically increased from approximately 42,000 slots in March 2020 to uh, 54,000 uh, slots in August 2023, which is a massive uh, increase uh, thanks to these uh, stabilization grants paid directly to the existing providers in the states. Wow, that's really interesting. This is all really new information for me. So I feel like I'm digesting a lot of what you're saying. I know that we've talked a lot and compared the childcare market in Utah to other regions and other states in the United States. In your research, have you found or identified any childcare models that work from other regions or even other countries? I, I think this is a great question after uh, after we talk about the positive impact of government funding, government uh, grants. So I think this COVID-19 tells us if we can uh, commit to public investment in childcare, that will be the, the best thing that uh, the U.S. could do for the market. So that means more generous publicly sponsored childcare would be the number one place, I think, to start. And, and then the reason that I say that it's because U.S. is considered as an outlier in developed countries uh, for its low level of financial support in childcare markets. So rather than universal subsidized childcare, there are a couple of options that families can 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 have affordable uh, childcare, like Head Start, Early Head Start, or some childcare development fund subsidies. Uh, these are the only programs federally funded and provide a kind of free childcare for low-income families. But these, uh, like especially these subsidies, are not easy to access. There are, there are uh, employment-tied subsidies. They have a long list of eligibility criteria for low-income working parents. So it's not very 
inclusive when you talk about when you think about the low income parents in the US besides those two options the market mostly rely on private providers such as childcare centers uh family childcare homes pre-kinder pre-kindergarten programs and some uh, school age programs so i think the increase in government spending uh during covid-19 is a, is a is a really good example of what the US can do to fix the uh problem Yeah, I would mention that um in recent studies, uh actually a recent report from UNICEF ranked the 40 richest countries in terms of their childcare policy. The US lang- ranked last in our family leave policies, near last in our access and affordability when it comes to childcare for kids 0 through 5. And for that expensive and relatively rare childcare, we ended up pretty much smack dab in the middle in terms of quality. So the track record in the United States is uh represents a fairly expensive, hard to access middling program that puts parents in a position where they must rely on this paid childcare um uh market because they don't have access to family leave. And I think if we were going to start with uh policies to support children 0 to 5 in this country, I think parental leave would be our first step. Um if in the in the child care market, um costs of care differ by child age and infants because they require so much direct one-on-one interaction are the most expensive age group of children to care for in the United States we rely on that paid care to a great degree because there are so many working moms and working fathers that don't have the choice to stay home and care for those those children when they're at their youngest and most vulnerable and most needy um in these other countries um we see that the goals around childcare support uh for working parents are really different some countries really target the labor force participation of parents some are looking to boost fertility rates in their country others are really focused on those child development and early early learning outcomes and i think one of the things you know to circle back to uh those broad social benefits of childcare you know when when families rely on paid leave they think about their personal cost benefit relationship between you know the ability to go to work and earn an income the ability to raise a uh, educationally intellectually prepared child before kindergarten right and they make those trade offs based on their own costs and benefits as they perceive them but nobody in that private market is really accounting for those broad benefits of um social development and intellectual development that spill over to society and that's where the government uh needs to act as a coordinator between the costs of those kinds of investments and the broad social benefits. Um I think the the uh fact that compared to other wealthy countries the US spends less per child um uh really represents an underinvestment in those social benefits. Thank you for sharing that. So I want to talk a little bit about the economic evaluation unit. You both serve on the economic evaluation unit. Can you explain a little bit about what that is and how it collaborates with government agencies, businesses, and community organizations to address childcare challenges in Utah? I'm happy to address this topic. 
The Economic Evaluation Unit is a cohort of economics department faculty and graduate research assistants that really care about the public policy implications of the research we do. We know, and I think it's pretty pretty well known uh, generally, that economics can be a very powerful tool for predicting policy outcomes, for evaluating policy outcomes, for interpreting the policy landscape. And we as economists want to use that tool to contribute as much as possible to our local communities. And in that, uh, because of that commitment, a few of our faculty with our research assistants have uh, created this organization within the department that does a lot of collaborative work with government agencies and other types of institutions in order to bring the analysis that we're best at to the places where it can be best used, most practical, and offer the biggest contribution. We at the EU, in particular, Yasga and I, have worked with the Office of Child Care here in Utah since 2020, since before the pandemic, actually, in order to understand the, the child care market here in Utah. And, you know, when we went into this in 2020, we didn't know it was going to be such a huge area of, you know, policy, um, policy debate over the next few years. So it's been a really exciting time. Um, our first and primary role with the Office of Child Care has been to um, collect data, analyze the data, write up reports that help the agency both uh, meet the federal reporting requirements surrounding child care subsidy block grants that come from the federal government. And as part of that reporting, use the data to target those subsidies at a level that's sufficient to facilitate equality of access to high quality care in the market. So the, uh, the federal government block grants that, that support subsidies for low-income households to reach uh, child care providers, um, our work has directly informed that subsidy rate setting process. Um, but we've also done a lot more too, you know, as, as the COVID pandemic unfolded and the child care market became such a pressing issue for households, you know, there was a lot more work that needed to be done. We've looked at the child care workforce here in Utah, evaluating not just, you know, the wages and benefits that are available to them, but a lot of other aspects of what it's like to be a child care worker. For example, we found in our most recent report that one in five child care workers holds a second job just to get by. And that's about four times higher than the rate of multiple job holders in the economy overall in Utah. Um, so we're really seeing the vulnerability of those, those uh, populations through our data and looking for new ways to support them. Yeah, so the, the maybe one thing that I, I, I can add. So the, the one of the first reports that we created for so child care with Catherine was the market rate survey. So basically, it's a survey that uh, includes the distribution of prices across the, uh, across the state, and that will help the agencies to set their subsidy rate. And during that report, we found that non-metropolitan region of Utah basically experienced a higher rate for full-time uh, center, center care. That was kind of surprising for, for us because it's a rural area and they do not like suffer from the um, 
it's a rural area and they do not experience higher prices for services and goods when you look at the uh, average numbers in the state but they experience higher rates for childcare so it's a uh, it was it was very concerning when we consider the low cost of living it, despite the low cost of living they experience the higher rates and at the same time we found that salt lake city metropolitan area uh experiencing also higher rates for full-time center care and this is very concerning because this area also shows the highest price in the state for other goods and services so we can talk about the double burden in salt lake city metro area with higher average prices in all goods and services and even higher prices in child care so this uh our, our research in the and the economic evolution unit was kind of valuable for us to understand the geographical differences for access to care and whether whether the families can have an affordable childcare through the rate through the state. That's right. And the follow up to that report will come out this May with uh, the price levels for 2024 broken down by provider type by uh, child age and by geographic region. And, you know, it's not just policymakers that look to those reports to understand what's going on in the market. Parents can look in and see where they fall on the distribution of childcare prices in their area. And providers too, you know, many of whom are just barely scraping by covering their costs um, can, can evaluate whether, you know, the market would bear a rate increase or not. Thank you so much for all of that wonderful information. I think I can say we're all really grateful a group of professionals is working on addressing all of these issues. That's really wonderful information. And I want to extend my gratitude to both of you for joining me in this conversation and sharing all this information with us. Um, and for also dedicating your time to addressing these challenges and these issues. Because like I said, I'm, I'm a mother and I have seen these challenges firsthand. Thanks for inviting us to talk with you today, Elizabeth. Of course. To those listening, thank you for joining us for another thought-provoking conversation with, with Dr. Katherine Rutschlin and Yazga Gensch. Stay tuned for more engaging discussions on the Be The Solution podcast. And remember, each conversation can drive positive change. Until next time.